Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 7. How Venice Sank. Giorgia Boscolo became Venice's first female gondolier in 2009. Breaking with centuries of tradition, 34-year-old Georgia was finally allowed to do something that previously only men had done. She was able to ferry paying customers around Venice's waterways. A triumph for feminism, you might think. Only sort of. Georgia was only allowed to paddle a gondola on certain days of the week, provided no male gondolier was available to do the job. Other women who've since tried to take the same test that Georgia took complained that the male examiners were overly strict in order to keep them off the canals. It's easy to read this story as a clash between 21st century egalitarianism and quaint Venetian tradition. Except Venice was never traditionally in the business of restricting trade like this. When Venice was the wheeler-dealing capital of the world, there was no guild of gondoliers. Guilds only became compulsory in Venice in 1539. Those rules and regulations that stipulate who can row what kind of gondola, built to what specifications and under what conditions, aren't nearly as old as we imagine. At some point, the productive, long paramount in Venice, were made subservient to vested parasitic interests. This subtle yet profound shift turned what was once the centre of innovation, ambition and enterprise into a crumbling museum. How did it happen? The change that came over Venice was not dramatic. There was no sudden transformation followed by a swift collapse. Decline by its nature tends to be a slow, steady rot. Indeed, in terms of art and architecture, Venice's most lavish and exuberant decades happened only after a gilded, or should that be gilded, elite had taken over. Like Medici Florence or Imperial Rome, perhaps it takes the proceeds of parasitism to commission some of the greatest artworks. Like Rome, Venice was also a republic that acquired an empire. The great inflow of wealth from overseas possessions upset the republic's internal equilibrium. It was not so much the raw inequality that was problematic, but the fact that this new source of wealth from outside allowed a faction within the body politic of the Republic to outgrow and circumvent the safeguards against the predominance of any one group. After sacking Constantinople in 1204, Venice took over various prized territorial possessions in the eastern Mediterranean that had previously belonged to Byzantium. A new class of colonial administrators grew rich running them. Trade from Cyprus, especially from sugar produced on slave estates, enriched a small number of families. Much as the acquisition of Sicily or Pergamon had enriched a faction within the Roman Senate, a small number of Venetians benefited from the acquisition of these new imperial possessions. By the end of the 13th century, a rich clique within Venice launched a constitutional coup. Previously an open oligarchy, in 1297 there was what is known even today as the Serata, closure, after which membership of the Great Council was restricted to political insiders. 
Soon membership became hereditary, de jure, as well as de facto. A new executive body, the Council of Ten, was created in 1310. It became the chief executive and judicial body of the state, answerable only to itself. Centuries of trying to restrict the danger of an overbearing executive by constraining the doge were undone. From 1315, the merchant aristocracy became a closed shop, literally. If your name was registered in the Libero d'Oro, or gold book, you were part of the oligarchy and could hold office and take part in administrative matters. If you were not on the list, you were not allowed in. And you were not just excluded politically, but economically too. The number of commender contracts involving non-nobility, those who weren't named in the gold book, dramatically declined. Economic historians Diego Puga and Daniel Trafella have shown that before the Serrata, before the closure, between 1073 and 1203, 40% of those involved in commander contracts in the city were not nobles. Between 1221 and 1240, a small majority of non-nobility engaged in commander-based trade. But after the oligarchic coup, the proportion of commoners trading under these contracts fell dramatically. Between 1325 and 1330, a mere 5% were non-nobles. Between 1339 and 1342, none were. Clearly, a few rich merchant families started to use political connections to ensure that the commender contracts were only awarded to the well-connected. Only the politically connected were given permission to trade. Within what was once a freewheeling city-state, guilds emerged, and they entered into a symbiotic alliance with the powerful and the well-connected, agreeing to pay a gallery tax in return for restrictions on trade that suited them. In 1324, the Capitulare Navigatium law entered into force. This stopped poorer merchants from trading. From then on, only the rich and politically connected were able to engage in long-distance trade and commerce. Indeed, the parasitic would force the productive to carry them, literally. Rules were imposed on private carriers, requiring them to have a noble on board, who was automatically granted a certain amount of stowage space for goods traded in his own name, even if they were carried at someone else's cost. Alongside the internal restraint on trade, the elites imposed a form of protectionism. Statutes were introduced preventing foreign-born merchants and their capital from investing in commander ventures. By the 15th century, rules insisted that Venetian goods had to be carried on Venetian ships. A series of ever more protectionist navigation acts followed. And with protectionism came nationalisation. From 1325, galleys had to be publicly owned, with merchants bidding to have space aboard them. Somewhat like our regulated markets today, trade still happened, but it was increasingly based on a system of permissions which had to be obtained. Relations with officialdom in the naval yard and the industrial hub of the city, the arsenale, suddenly became more important than those with the customers, who were forced to buy from a restricted range of suppliers. But, as a manufacturing hub, the arsenale became a shadow of its former self. By the early 14th century, 
It had been the largest industrial centre in Europe and was the site of innovation and ship design. Soon after the closure and the imposition of restrictive practices, it was producing only a few dozen antiquated galleries. Galleys, totally unsuited to carrying goods on long-distance ocean routes that the Dutch or the English had started to open up. Indeed, far from trying to adapt the new nautical technology that was transforming shipping in northwestern Europe, Venice's rentier-rich restricted innovation. Ships constructed in the Arsenale were only built according to nationalised standards. While new, faster, ocean-going types of ships were being designed and built in Holland and England, such as the Dutch Fluit, the Arsenale continued to churn out the same sort of ponderously slow, less manoeuvrable galleys. Perhaps with only one state-owned boat builder, there simply wasn't the scope for the kind of innovation happening elsewhere. Venetian naval technology might have been sufficient to defeat the Turks at the Planto in 1571 when galleys were pitched against galleys. But northwestern Europe had by then developed an entirely new kind of naval technology, with ships able to undertake long-distance ocean voyages, all of which left galleys, partly powered by rowers, increasingly obsolete. The Serrata, say Puga and Trafella, marked the beginning of the end of Venice's maritime power. Venice's slide from free market capitalism to crony corporatism brought restrictions on manufacturing and labour too. Before the 13th century, guilds had been expressly forbidden from boycotting customers and had never been permitted to exclude new workers from joining. That all changed long before Giorgio Boscolo had had the temerity to want to row a gondola. Guilds became compulsory and they were no longer open to anyone as Georgia and others have found out. They acted as a restraint on trade in the interests of a few who were given a privilege that wasn't extended to everyone. By the 15th century, there were detailed rules specifying what kind of apprenticeships textile workers had to have undertaken and restrictions on who could work and in what capacity. Increasingly, Venetians were no longer free to sell their labour to whom they wished. In fact, workers lost the right to leave their jobs. Skilled craftsmen of the Murano glassworks and shipwrights in the Arsenale were forbidden from emigrating. By 1460, it was decreed that corklers attempting to leave Venice to sell their labour elsewhere were liable to six years' imprisonment. The result of these constraints was that Venice lost her innovative edge, not just in shipbuilding. In the 16th century, for example, silk merchants imposed restrictions on silk processes in order to protect their own interests, but in doing so prevented Venice's silk looms from developing new techniques. In the absence of opportunities for productive investment, the elite increasingly ploughed their capital not into trade and manufacturing, but into large estates on the terra firma mainland. So much so that in 1677 a law was passed to try to stop this. Under the weight of parasitism, innovation in Venice gave way to stagnation. 
Once a place where outsiders came to make their fortune, Venice became a city where every man owed his position to what his father had been, from stevedore to custom house, through to the privileged craftsmen of the arsenale, to the secretariat in government bureaus, up to the nobles in the Senate and the Council of Ten. Venice's increasingly closed system did not content itself with simply restricting trade in order to feather its own nest. Vested interests also helped themselves to public funds. Bureaucracy expanded to provide employment to the well-connected. A law passed in 1490 seemed to suggest that most of the nobility in Venice at that time were living on the public payroll, enjoying some sort of sinecure. Sinecures permeated the arsenale and the military, rendering them increasingly ineffective. The American medievalist Frederick Lane blames the string of naval and military defeats that Venice suffered on the incompetence of over-promoted oligarchs. Within what had been a relatively open and meritocratic republic emerged a new class, the Barnabotti, that lived off state sinecures. Not unlike the class of what we in Britain today called quangocrats, who earn a good living from the public sector, these Barnabotti lived well at public expense in Venice and had a vested interest in an ever more enlarged and bloated state. The Barnabotti started to consume a growing share of the state budget. By the 17th century, they accounted for over 200,000 ducats of state spending each year. In the last days of Venice as an independent state, more nobles were on the state payroll than there were members of the Grand Council. To fund the sinecures, the parasites had to take from the productive. So taxes, sometimes in the form of forced loans imposed on Jewish merchants, soared. In 1340, tax revenues yielded a quarter of a million ducats. Over a million ducats by 1500. Nearly two and a half million ducats by 1600. Unlike the Roman elite, the Venetians didn't bother with debasing the currency. They simply imposed forced loans on those who were not politically well-connected enough to avoid them. Think of it as a sort of compulsory bond purchasing scheme. The guilds, too, became a kind of tax farmer operating on behalf of the state. Once required to provide the government with a complement of galley rowers in times of crisis, the guilds began to pay a levy in lieu of this, which morphed into a tax. Perhaps it was in return for this that the guilds got rules and regulations that protected their interests. The enrichment of the Venetian elite was not down to the free market. On the contrary, a small elite enriched themselves by restricting the market. In 15th century Venice, capital was concentrated as a consequence of what you would today call crony corporatism. From the 16th and 17th centuries, Venice lost a share of the markets in Mediterranean textiles. The Dutch and the English producers simply undercut what Venice produced. The advent of Dutch and English competition might explain how Venice fell behind, but not why. The reason Venice's textiles were so hopelessly uncompetitive, why no Venetian producer, despite a head start of several centuries, was apparently capable of making the sort of innovations in textile production that seemed to come so easily to her rivals, was in large part due to the restrictive practices of her own guilds. 
cronyism killed off her competitive advantage. Venice stagnated, declining not necessarily in absolute terms, but certainly in relative terms. Other cities and states in Europe became more important as centres of trade, production and innovation. Venice became an economic sideshow and increasingly a relic. By 1796, several centuries after the Serata, Napoleon finally did what no invader had achieved in a thousand years. He launched a successful invasion across the lagoon. Venice, an independent state for over a thousand years, was annexed by outsiders. In a sense, the real Venetian Republic had fallen long before. What Napoleon snuffed out was a grubby, rentier state, not the proud hub of innovation and exchange that had dominated Mediterranean trade in the Middle Ages. If few rallied to defend the Republic when the end came, perhaps it's because there wasn't much of a Republic left to defend. Maybe the time to defend the Venetian Republic had been long before, at the time of the Serata. That at least was the view of one Bagamonte Tiopolo, who led a populist revolt against the increasingly self-serving oligarchy way back in the summer of 1310. Bagamonte's armed insurrection, it said, floundered when a woman, Justina Rosi, dropped a mortar on the head of his standard bearer in the street below, killing him instantly and stopping the rebels in their tracks. Like the Gracchi before him, Bagamonte's uprising failed. His revolt is little more than a footnote in history, having done nothing to arrest the emergence within Venice of a rentier economy. Perhaps that was the moment when the Venetian Republic started to die, in spirit if not yet in substance. Far from being the Republic's saviour, Bagamonte died in obscurity and has remained there ever since. Venice's most famous son is instead a close contemporary of Bagamonte's, Marco Polo. He became famous not for insurrection, but for exploration. Polo's travels revealed, even if at times they exaggerated, that progress was not just something that happened in the Mediterranean. China was in many ways at that time far advanced compared to much of Europe, including perhaps even Venice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.